The, um, we do have, so we've been in Isaiah for a bit, and we, we have seven more weeks. But at the end of these seven weeks, uh, we're going to have a bit of a sharing time. So it's going to be, it's not going to be our normal kind of Sunday. And most of we're going to hear from you of things that you've learned over these, over however many weeks in total, 15 or so. Um, so especially if you have the, those Isaiah books, it might be helpful to note something down that might be um, you know, that you might have learned, you might have found interesting, or um, something where you feel like God's really been working at in your heart through this, um, through learning more about these chapters in Isaiah. Um, but two chapters, it's a, it's, a big, it's a big little chunk, isn't it? Uh, we will hopefully make sense of it in the end. I think one big thing we're going to look at is how God is talking to rebels. This is really what this is all about. People who have hearts that aren't immediately drawn to God. I don't know if that's like you at all, but that's certainly me. Um, hearts that rebel against God. Now, I probably uh, think, or I think that probably a lot of us like to think that we have like a little rebel streak within us, um, or at least it's entertaining. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a film where the main character just went with the grain the entire, the entire film. Like, that'd be very boring. Like, oh, what happened? Oh, he just followed all the rules. And what happened at the end? That's it. He just followed all the rules, and he went to bed at night, and he was semi-satisfied with life. You know, the, I think the, um, the, the music we listen to, the Netflix shows we watch, all these things, there has to be some kind of rebellion, some kind of, of um, fighting against something that's going to make it interesting. Not only just for our entertainment sake, but we, there's parts of us in our lives where we think of like that. Because we want to be interesting. We want to have meaning in our lives. And so we kind of fashion ourselves as a little bit of, uh, as a, a, little bit of a rebel. Um, and this is really, I think this is a great thing, actually, because this could be fighting global poverty, or it could be um, maybe just having a chip on our shoulder because we're from the North or the South or from America or wherever else. You know, there's a part, there's a rebel in all of us. Um, and I think the problem isn't the fact that we're rebellious. The problem is we don't often know what to rebel against, the right thing to rebel against. In fact, I would think, and maybe this is like a weird thing for a church to say, actually, we're not the problem is that we're, we're not rebellious enough. We're just like low-level rebels. Rebelling against really small things, but the really big things we don't really think to kind of fight against. We rebel against small things but are stubbornly committed to much larger issues that we ought to be rebelling against. And that leads us into all sorts of problems, and we'll get into those problems in a bit. So we, we might rebel against women getting a lower wage in the workplace or black and other ethnic minorities being treated poorly, poorly and rightfully so. Those are great things to rebel against. Uh, let's fight against those things. But when we don't rebel against the, status, the spiritual status quo and keep our hearts far from God, that leads us into much bigger problems. And one might make the argument that leads us into all the other problems. So instead of rebelling against the status quo, what we do is we embrace it, we accept it. And those of us who are Christians, and those who aren't, we all act this way. None of us are really kind of acting the way we want to. And that's a bit of what's going on here for the audience in Isaiah. We're the same kind of humans. Technology has advanced. Housing has advanced. You know, all sorts of things have advanced. But really, like, we have, we're the same kind of humans with the same kind of problems. This human story continues. And a bit of a background. So um, you've heard a bit of that story um, that we've talked about with uh, Israel not, um, not being faithful to God. And then God's going to take Israel, and they're going to be in this other nation, and they're going to be refugees, and then eventually they're going to come back. But there's a, this story has slightly progressed at this point now. Some of our story here in Isaiah has progressed. So Babylon, this outside nation, 
that God has chosen to take over Israel. Basically, mostly up until now, God has had mostly good words for them. Now, they don't follow God, but they're kind of fulfilling his purposes. Now, not so now. God has some words for, for Babylon here. We'll get to that. Uh, basically, God is just, and people who are going to perpetuate injustice will receive God's justice. And Israel, who are God's people, their progression is uh, continued stubbornness, which I don't know if you can identify with in your own spiritual life. You know you need to grow in this thing or that thing, but really, you don't really want to, so you just kind of don't. The progression of this story is the continued regression of God's people, of their hearts. But thankfully, God is more stubborn in his love than we are towards him. And so we're going to look at this, uh, this rebellion kind of stuff first. First, we're going to see how we are rebels towards God. So God's for rebels. We're rebels towards him first. There's a lot going in these other chapters about other gods we chase after. And these two chapters really start with it here in verse 1. So if you have your little thing or if you have uh, your Isaiah book or your Bible or an app, the, there's these two gods that are named that you're, you may have no idea of, of what they're about. It's okay, I had to look it up too, you know? Um, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Like, who are these things? Bell is actually another word for the name, uh, the, the god named Marduk, who's this um, city god for Babylon. One of the ways to worship Marduk was to sacrifice your children to them, to throw your babies to Marduk and kill them, and that would be a way to worship him. Nebo is Marduk's son, and he's the city god of another kind of nearby city. So this isn't just kind of like benign kind of nature worship and people are happy. This is horrendous kind of stuff, okay? Now, both of these gods, what do they offer? Well, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. They're, they're kind of stooped. They're in this position of like a big heavy weight on their back. There's a burden on their backs. They can't move themselves. They're transported by beasts of burden. These images themselves are, are burdensome. And for the weary people who are coming to them in worship, they become a burden, that word burden is over and over and over again. And in verse 2, we get a little bit more of this, of the people who worship these gods. They stoop and bow down together. They're burdened. Or, I'm sorry, the, um, the, these gods are, are burdened. These gods are unable to rescue the burden because these gods themselves are, are captives. They're not free. They can't do anything. These gods aren't able to rescue any person's burden. In fact, they only add to it. Burdened people worship burdened gods to be relieved of the burden, but instead what they're getting is more. More of the same, more of the same bad stuff. So we become what we worship. And that is the grand theme for these other gods. What they do, this is every single false god out there. They take life and they give burdens. God does the opposite. He takes burdens and he gives life. Every other false god out there will take life from you and give you a burden. Now maybe you don't worship Bel or Nebo. Please say you don't worship Bel or Nebo. If you worship Bel, we'll have a chat about your children. Um, but there are definitely gods that we worship. And there are city gods in Manchester. You know, we don't have idols that maybe we like, physically bow down to, but Manchester has its own city gods, and we're spoiled for choice, really. We have more. In our default position, all of us, we're rebels towards God, and this never works out for us. It's always bad for us, but yet we keep on doing it over and over and over again. Now, whether you love Jesus or are suspicious of him or just kind of don't care, here are four gods that we seek after instead of the God. And this is what... Uh, these chapters in 46 and 47, they get to these, basically these four kinds of ways to worship things other than God. Money, pleasure, sorry, money, power, pleasure, and sorcery. Money, power, pleasure, sorcery. We've got to get into these. We've got to go low before we get, you know, relieved of this burden. The first thing is money, and this comes up very quickly in verses 6 and 7. So uh, 
Yeah, I'm on the right slides. Very good. Uh, some pour out gold from their bags. They weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make a god, and they bow down and worship this thing. They lift their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. That's kind of like a sarcastic way of saying this god can't do anything. Uh, it can't save them from their troubles. We earn it. We make something out of it, and then we bow down to it. Whatever it is, we buy it. It can't move. It's not alive. We cry out to it which is something that you would do right before bed when you have those thoughts swirling in your head about money or about the thing that you bought. It's also, it's, isn't it interesting? Sometimes the possessions that we own, sometimes kind of owning us, especially things that we think are very special. Those thoughts that swirl around in your head, you're giving time and attention to those thoughts. It's a, it's a way of worshiping. We cry out to money, but not only can it not answer you because the thing is not alive, it can't save you from your troubles. But we think it can. Even though we say yes, I mean, especially for good religious churchy people, it's like, oh, we know we don't worship money, can't save us from our troubles, but yet that's what we spend our life working for. Enough money means enough padding against the bad stuff that comes at us, right? And that, that, can, that can save us. Enough money means an easy retirement where we, can't just, where we can just think about ourselves. Enough money can give us entertainment to keep our hearts so busy that won't keep us still for a moment to ponder like the thing that's giving us difficulties. Money creates slaves to careers. And unless we think that child sacrifice is a thing of the past, it exists today, it just looks differently. To worship at the altar of money does require child sacrifice. A life focused on a career first will sacrifice children and friends and family and church. There's, there's not enough time for that. If we have enough money, we're good. If we don't have enough money, we're not good. Now, this is something I think about often because I have not chosen a career that lends itself to lots of financial security. In fact, we were just talking about this, something about this the other day. And the question is like, will we have enough for when I'm too old to work and get paid? I'm not really kind of completely sure on that. Will there be enough to provide for my family? Now, those thoughts and worries, having them by themselves is not a bad thing. They come from a good place. You want to care for your family. You want your children to be cared for. Those are good questions to have. The question is where we take those questions. Where do we take those questions? Do we find the answer in a dead, inactive, indifferent thing like money? Money is not able, really, is not able to rescue me from my burden. It's not able, going after money first creates more burdens. Taking my money burdens to money gives me more burdens. That's the thing we see over and over and over again. False gods take life and they give burdens. So that's money. The next thing we have in the first seven verses of chapter 47 is power. See, Babylon, and this is where God has some words for Babylon. Babylon is this other nation. They don't worship Yahweh, but God's using them for his purposes of justice against his own people. Uh, and they were, Babylon was in power through legitimate means. It wasn't like they scrambled to power, stole power for themselves. God gave them the power that they have. But in their position of power, they misused it. Look at verse 6 of chapter 47. It says, I was angry with my people, this is Israel, um, and desecrated my inheritance, so they kind of didn't care about God at all. I gave them into your hand, so God gave Israel into Babylon's hand, and you showed them no mercy. So God doesn't like that. The next line, even on the age, you laid a very heavy yoke. God doesn't like that either. Babylon is saying, I am forever, I'm the eternal queen. But they didn't consider these things or reflect on what might happen. So they had all this power. They thought they were on top of the world, and maybe for a moment they were. But in their position of power... They misused it. Now, chasing after power first in your life will always, just as it is for Babylon, will always lead to you burdening other people. And like money, if you're chasing after it, what you have is never enough. 
If you're chasing after power, some kind of like feeling of security or comfort, because that's an aspect of power, you're never going to have enough. To steal power for yourself will always lead to dehumanizing others, even if it's in only small ways. Now, this might be really easy to see in something like larger outside of ourselves, in something like politics. People might be you know, elected completely fairly and everything, and then the way they use their power is for themselves first and not to serve other people. This is a, you know, any political party. This is just kind of the story of politics. But let's not let ourselves off the hook so easily because every single one of you here, you do have power. You may not be the prime minister or whatever the thing is, but every single person in this room has power. You have people you're connected to. You have people who you can influence, people who you lead. If you're a parent, you have immense power over your children. There's no one more powerful in this world for your children than you. If you have a partner, that is an insane amount of power. The friends you have, your family, your neighbors. If you have a job, if you have a house, if you own a car, you may not think that's power, and that might just be because you're used to it. It is. You might just be immune. See, money can be a form of power. How are we using it? According to the, uh, the charity shelter this past December, they had these official, um, they make official rough sleeping and people who are living in temporary accommodation numbers. This, they found out that one in every 81 people in Manchester is homeless. That's a lot. In the Northwest, more than 5,500 children are currently homeless. Children. Manchester is highest in the Northwest. In the UK, suicide continues to be the single biggest killer of men under the age of 40, or under the age of 45. So if I was to die right now, the most likely statistical cause would be that I killed myself. Just having a house, just having some level of good mental health, just having friends. You may not think of it in this way, but it is power. There's power there. How are we using it? Are we hoarding it for ourselves, the way Babylon was? Are we using it just to make ourselves feel good about ourselves? Having power in itself is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing because God has given us some kind of gift. But what are we doing with it? Are we the center? How are we using the power that God has given us, the power we legitimately have, in a way that shows others mercy, which is the thing that God really cares about here in these verses? And that's actually what your power is for. That's the whole reason for having it. Here's an example. If you have a family, how are you using that gift for others? Not everyone has a family. Some people um, who want one don't have one. Inviting people into your family is a way to use that power for good. Dinner, hanging out, errands, whatever the thing is. If we all acted like that, the church would be seen as a place for people to belong first, as it should be. So we have money, we have power, and then we also have pleasure. Verses 8 through 11 in chapter 47 talk about pleasure. I just love the way this is put, because I feel like this really gets to, maybe this is close to my heart, but also I think it's, Basically, Trollton. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, this is great. Lounging in your security. Isn't that actually what we all chase after? We all want to lounge in our security. That sounds really good. Give me some security, I'll lounge in that any day. Thanks for that. Pleasure is another God that we worship. Comfort, luxury, ease, escape. These are all words we like. People make a lot of money off of words like that. There's a prideful root to life that seeks pleasure before anything else. In these verses, we're pictured as like trying to stockpile all these pleasures in order to avoid disaster. In verse 10, that confuses our own wisdom and knowledge. Verse 10 says, you've trusted in your, weak, uh, your wickedness and said no one sees me. Your own, your wisdom and knowledge mislead you. So that even when we think we're doing something right, if we're orientated around pleasure, that's going to mislead us. Pleasure is just another one of these false gods. And surely being able to lounge in our security is a major life goal for anyone. When you organize your life around what feels good for you first, you disregard other people in your life. 
You say, I am. There's none besides me. You say, I'm the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. That means being with people who might be a little difficult or a little different, now that becomes an inconvenience. You can probably avoid it. You probably set your life up to avoid that. And what we do is we try to organize our lives so that everything we do, every person we see, every meal we have is what feels good for us first. And maybe a good analogy of this is pornography. You go to a porn site, you can find whatever you want. And what you get is that facade of pleasure without any real meaning into it. It's, it's empty. It will not fulfill. This is why people get addicted to it. It's not about loving another person, of course. It's, 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 a, it's about an empty attempt at trying to satisfy your own desires. And of every pastor I've spoken to, this is true of every single church coming out of the pandemic, all of us, every single one in this room, me too, we're all seeking comfort more than we ever have before. I mean, in one way, you can get it, right? We've been through a lot over the past two years, right? But just know that about yourself. You will be seeking comfort more than you ever have before. And then what that means also is that when we sacrifice comfort, those sacrifices are going to be much smaller than we've made them before as well. We've been through a lot. We're tired. We're burdened. We just want to stay in and watch telly and lounge in our security. I totally get it. I understand the reasons why you'd want to do that. I know the reasons why I'd want to do that. But no matter how many comforts we try and stockpile, the answer to our weariness can't be found there. And more disasters are going to come. It's not like now nothing else is going to happen. See, this is what we're talking about with Isaiah. The context of chaos and despair can be the perfect conditions to create worshipers of pleasure. But also, they can be the perfect conditions to create a people of peace, of hope, of a deeper comfort beyond those kind of service-level things, one that can be resilient through disasters because we get to rely on the Lord through it all. And ironically, seeking pleasure to alleviate burdens, in the long run, it just burdens us all the more. Now, these first three, maybe you've gotten this last one, might be a little bit tricky. Uh, we talked about money, talked about, um, what else did we talk about? Power, we talked about pleasure. Now we're talking about sorcery. You're like, yeah, okay, I get the other ones. I can see the analogies here, but sorcery, yeah, that's, I'm not really a magician. I mean, maybe I could entertain some kids, but I'm not like, you know, trying to raise the dead or something like that. Now, I think actually this might apply to us a little bit more than what we think. This is one of those things where we read about it in the Bible and kind of skim over it, like, oh, that doesn't apply to us anymore. But I think it really does. Let's look at verses. This is verses 12 through 15 in chapter 47. Um, Keep on them with your magic spells, with your sorceries at which you labored at since childhood. Perhaps you'll succeed. Perhaps you cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Astrologers come forward. Stargazers make predictions. Let them save you. Surely they're like stubble. The fire's going to burn them up. So God is telling people who have practiced sorcery since they were little, yeah, go ahead, keep on it. Let's see what happens. You think you're going to get a good thing out of it? Well, maybe you will. Maybe it'll be a bad thing. Really, what it does is it wears people out. It leads people to exhaustion. So every place that these people are seeking counsel, astrologers, stargazers, they can't do anything to help. They all have it wrong. And here's how those two chapters end, the very last verse, the very last um, line of verse 15. There is none that can save you. See, sorcery is a type of art that tries to see the future, tries to predict the future. It requires a lot of work. There's a lot of predictions uh, that are going on, and people change their lives in order to take advantage of what they've supposedly learned from these predictions. Sorcery basically is just misplaced spiritual advice. Now, we may not practice the same kind of sorcery, but this kind of trying to tell the future and live by that, it still exists, of course. 
of course, people read horoscopes and go, you know, go to palm readers and things like that. But I think more people follow and live by the economy. The economy's up, I'm up. Economy's down, I'm down. More people follow and live by politics. If my guy is in, that's good. If my guy isn't in, that's horrible. Technology, like the hope of technology is going to solve all of our problems in the future. We use things like that as counsel and predictions for our lives today. They become the basis for how we live. So no longer is the basis here. The basis is in you know, following whatever kind of economic indicator you think is interesting. We elect leaders whose character may not be up to snuff, but we want them to get the job done because we care more about the economy than people's character. We're pragmatists, really. And I know that these things affect you, especially the economy and politics, because of the conversations that we've had. If your emotions are affected, if the way you wake up in the morning is affected because of a political thing or because of an economic thing, like, that shows maybe you're giving a little bit too much of your heart to these like, sorcery-like kind of predictions. It may not be proper sorcery, but it certainly has the same effect in our hearts. We give ourselves over to these stories and they run our lives, or at least parts of it. So if you wake up and read the news the very first thing, you flip up on your phone and you're, you're reading like kind of news thing, you're going to have a certain kind of day. If you wake up and the first thing you do is read the Bible and talk to God, you're going to have a different kind of day. The same exact things will happen in that day, but how you go through it will be different depending on where you go first. Now, money, pleasure, power, sorcery, instead of seeking God, what we do is we rebel him, we rebel against him and follow these other things. We end up in these endless loops I'm worshiping money, it's not giving me enough, so I'm going to like put more into it, and, and we just, our life gets taken away. We end up exhausted and burdened. It keeps us bowed down and stooped, because these gods are nothing but bowed down and stooped themselves, and we become what we worship. The status quo is an endless loop that leads to exhaustion and leads to burdens. We're stubborn people. We have stubborn hearts. We're very rebellious. <laughs> but thankfully, God is more stubborn in his love than we are stubborn towards him in our hearts. And so there is actually good news for us. And I love, love, love verse 8. Take it to heart. Listen up, you rebels. Listen up, you rebels. Hey, are you, are you, you all are rebels. Listen up. We're get, we get to listen, and we get to hear good news of God speaking to rebels. What is this the thing that we should be taking to heart? Only God has the power to do God-like things. Only God has the power to do things that God can. Verse 9, and we've heard this multiple times through Isaiah. I am God, there is no other. He even repeats himself in that verse. I am God, there is none like me. He chooses what will happen, and he actually does it. All these other gods, they're fakes, they're pretenders. These faux gods are lame substitutes, promising the world and only delivering burdens. So verse 12 tells us uh, that we need to listen to God, because we're the stubborn-hearted, and we're now far from his righteousness, following these other gods. Thankfully, God doesn't say, okay, why don't you come near and see my righteousness? God says, no, 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 I bring my righteousness near to you. That's an amazing thing. That's a big difference. But God brings his righteousness. And his righteousness is just his goodness. He brings all of his goodness near to us. Our hearts might be far from him, but he's not far away from us. And his salvation, his all-encompassing rescue, the thing that gives, him, that gives us wholeness, is coming to his people. So when we're stuck in those cycles of burden that we just talked about, only briefly touched on, this is really, really good news. We don't break those cycles God does. So rebels, let's, let's take this to heart. Here's what God says he does. For us rebels, he carries us, he sustains us, he rescues us, and he brings his goodness near. Now, if you're taking notes, those are worthy of writing down. We're going to get into those. 
because that's just really good news that you're going to have to hear over and over and over again. And it starts in in verse 4 of chapter 46. The Lord carries us. When you're exhausted from worshiping at these altars of money and power and pleasure and sorcery, the promise that God has for you is this. I've made you. I've carried you. God knows you better than anyone else, and still, with all that knowledge, he still chooses to love you and carry you. You don't have to carry yourself. You don't have to have it all together. That's really good news. I always feel like I have to have it all together. The gospel for me is that I don't have to. God gets to carry me. You don't have to put on a good religious smile when you feel dead inside. God has carried you, is carrying you, and he will. He also sustains us. When you just don't feel like you can go on, when the daily grind of like the monotony just kind of gets to you, just like, I just don't want to do this anymore. When chasing after all those non-God things has stolen all your energy from you, it's good news to know that God sustains us. Even to your old age, this is verse 4 again, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. When we're old and we've lived a life, we've done a lot of things in our life that we don't really like to think about and we know they're bad. God knows them even better and still, he's been with us through all of that and he still sustains us. Even in our own age, in our old age, when physically it might seem difficult or impossible, we don't rely on human strength. We rely on God's strength to sustain us. Like he has the power to sustain the universe. Surely, he has the power to sustain you. The other thing he does is he rescues us. Money, power, and pleasure, sorcery, all claim to rescue us from something. There's a reason why we go to them. We think they're going to give us something. But verse 2 of, of chapter 47, oh no, I got this wrong. Chapter 46 says that uh, those gods, chapter 46, are unable to rescue the burden because they themselves are held captive. The weight on our back can only come off through God's rescue. And at the end of verse 4, he says, I will sustain you and I will rescue you. He sustains us and says, I will rescue you. That's a promise that God is going to save us. God will deliver you. He will recover you. Whatever you feel like is lost in this world, whatever you feel like you have lost already in this world, through what Jesus has done, through God, he's going to give it to us. He's going to make us whole. Whatever you think is far, like too far gone, God in his infinitely powerful love uses that power to rescue us. And the last thing that we find out about what God does for us rebels is in verse 13. He brings his righteousness near. He brings his goodness near. God says, I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. So all the messes we've made, rebelling against God, God in his response, what does he do? He brings his goodness to bear on it all. All of God's goodness, it's like it infects our lack. It's like a I don't know if a vaccine works this way, but maybe something like that. Like you, a small little part of something goes in, uh, a, 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 in an unhealthy system and infects it for the good. It's a good infection. All of God's goodness infects our lack, all the goodness that only comes from God. That purity, it renews us, it cleanses us. We make the mess, but he doesn't keep us that way. He comes near us and cleanses us. And the way that God comes near is through a community. God can choose to work however he wants to, yet the way he's chosen has always been to work through us. This is true here. He's talking to people. He's talking to the nation of Israel, talking to people. God very rarely never will just interact with one person individually with him. He loves to work through his people. Here in the time of the audience, there is a nation of Israel that God used to work through. After Jesus came to earth, he broadened the scope of that mission. 
And now God, the Holy Spirit, works in all kinds of people, in all kinds of backgrounds, not limited to geography or ethnicity. No longer a nation. God has established his church. And the way that God uh, comes near is through his church. The way that God loves us is through his people, through his church. The way that God goes to new people in new places is through new churches. And starting new churches is still the single most effective way to reach people for God. That's still the single most effective way God uses to reach new people for himself. Nothing even comes close when you look at the ratios. And that's because it's how he's designed it. We're not doing this thing because we thought it was a good idea. Surely not. We're doing this because we're following the way that God has told us to do things. Now, Redeemer, we're still a new church. Uh, we'll be four years old at the kind of near the beginning of June. So we're still kind of establishing ourselves. I mean, if you've not been, we've been using the word a couple of times, church plant. Basically, like, it's another word for like a, a new church or a church startup or something like that. We're not yet, Redeemer, we're, we've, we've progressed a lot, but we're not yet a fully established church. Um, I just want to throw some numbers at you. Right now, there are about uh, 60,000 people in the Charlton area. This is uh, Stratford, Wiley Range, Burswood, Charlton, Charlton Park. About 60,000 people, a little bit more than that. Of the 60,000 people who live in what I would call that our neighborhood, of the 60,000 people who live in our neighborhood, less than 0.3% of people go to a church that preaches the gospel and lives it out. Less than 0.3%. If our neighborhood was a, reach, was, a, was a people group, it would be an unreached people group, very, like, according to anyone's definition. And actually, that 0.3% is a little bit optimistic. How is God going to draw near to the 99.7%? How in the world is he going to do that? I don't know exactly how, but I know the method he's going to use is going to be through church planting. Because that's what he always does. Through new churches. Through a church like Redeemer, but also more than Redeemer. Because even if we got to 2% of people, that would be 1,200 people. It's a little bit small, right? We'd be a little bit cramped in here. Wouldn't that be a great problem to have? But this is why you're here. You may not have come here for this reason, you may not have known this even until right now, but I'm telling you one of the reasons why you are part of Redeemer, one of the reasons why you're here right now is God wants to reach the 99.7%, and this is why you're here. This is one of the reasons why God saved you. One of the reasons for your salvation is so that other people would be able to experience that. And how does he do that? He always works through people, through a church, through church planting. This means we need more than one new church in this big area. If 2% of people went to a church that was all about Jesus, again, that's 1,200 people. That means we don't need just Redeemer. We need to be about church planting even in our small little neighborhood. Wouldn't that be great if the churches started popping up all over the place? That'd be amazing. But let's not limit our scope, because even our neighborhood, that's a bit myopic. It's a bit too small. We're part of a city. Manchester has 2.8 million people. About 2%, again, I think it's a very optimistic estimate, about 2% of people going to any kind of church at all, regardless of what their beliefs might be. If we want to be a part of God's mission, where he comes close to those who are far away. We can't limit our vision to our church. We can't limit our vision to our neighborhood. We have to think of, of the city. We pray for new churches. We come alongside them in training. We come alongside in giving. I meet with church planters every month to hopefully to be a part of, of working this. Like Manchester is a lot like us. We're rebels towards God. There's a rebellious streak in the city, and I love it. I just wish it was more rebellious. We like being rebels here. The most rebellious thing one could ever do in a place like this is to rebel against these false gods that we just talked about. They're not going to give you anything 
and actually follow Jesus. That's the most rebellious thing anything anyone can ever do. These gods, they keep us low. They keep the status quo low. They're like a vampire, like leeching life from us and not giving anything in return. The early Christians were called atheists because they didn't worship the gods of the day. There were a lot of gods of the day, just like we have. And that's, I think, a fitting title for us today. As Christians, we are called to be atheists, atheists towards all other gods, rebelling against those that steal from us. Now, we have no problem being all rebellious when a political party comes to town. How lame of us to just give in to that which really does enslave us. Manchester is not rebellious enough. That's just a facade. I think through the work of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus, we can show this city what being a rebel really looks like. Us, through what Jesus has done, can be the rebels that we were made to be. We can be those rebels because that's exactly what Jesus was. There was no more rebellious figure in all of history than Jesus. A rebel against political structures, a rebel against religious structures, but more importantly, a rebel against the darkness of our own hearts. See, God himself is the rebel that we need. And he recreates us to be rebels against money, power, pleasure, sorcery, all those other things. To put these in the right place and to free us from our slavery. Jesus knows our burdens because he became like us. And he says to all who are burdened, come to me who are weary. I will give you rest. Have you, are you burned out? Are you exhausted? Is life just kind of like, have you just been ground to the earth? Come to me. I'm going to give you rest. And not just like a little sleep or a little nap. Rest that something's like a, a fulfilling, a renewing, a wholeness. Only Jesus can rescue us. And in verse 12, God says he will give splendor to his people. His beauty. We feel ragged, he makes us beautiful. Jesus took all that was not beautiful with him to the cross, and he put it to death. What a rebel move. What a rebel move. Dragging all of that with him to the grave. But it gets better because the resurrection was the ultimate rebellion against death. We're all supposed to die, and that's all supposed to be the end. Jesus says, no, I'm going to change a few things. He loves to turn the tables. That's exactly what he does with death. In the most rebellious act in all of history, Jesus resurrects himself. And now for those who are connected to him through faith, we get that same resurrection power to carry us, to sustain us. That power is what will, what will rescue us. It's God himself, a power that death itself can't even stop at work within us. And that means when we meet death, and all of us will, we get to laugh in its face. I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to that. Death can't keep us down. Are you kidding me? Death is going to keep you down? Uh-uh. He rescues, he carries, he sustains, and Jesus continues his mission to bring his goodness near through his church, through starting new churches, through bringing new life into places where it hasn't yet been. And that could be you. That could be the people that you know. And maybe you've lived next to them for years and known them for years. People in your family. That could be people who you don't yet, people who you just had a random conversation with on Monday. With you, like while you're the, if you guys were here, it was insane. Uh, the kids were, came out of the woodwork all over in Charlton. They were like frantically, Dan was frantically trying to make badges and all sorts of things. And there's a few little conversations that we have. Who knows? What we pray for is for that to be more than just a conversation, that to be more than just like a little project for people to do something on a day when they might be bored. We're praying that God would work through that and that he would bring people to life. And as God's church, we get to continue the rebellious work of becoming atheists to all other gods and wholeheartedly following the one true God. So, fellow rebels, let's all take this to heart. And the bread and the cup symbolize Jesus' body 
and blood. He went through death so that we wouldn't. Not death in our lives now and not death in the end. As we eat and drink, we remember what he went through to carry us, to sustain us, to rescue us and bring his goodness near. Now, if you don't yet follow Jesus, uh, what we're about to do, the Lord's Supper and Communion, it's not, uh, it's not something for you, but it is for anyone who wants in on this. In a moment, we're going to sing and celebrate the Lord's Supper as we sing to him. See, Jesus, he's recruiting rebels. And if you follow Jesus, now is the time to recommit to that rebellion. That's what the Lord's Supper is, is a recommitment every week we get to do. Yes, Lord, I follow you. I say, no, I'm an atheist, all these other gods. We follow you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we uh, get to be part of this people 